You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and I just want to set up this interview because we've been hinting at this, and if you listen to our Black Mamba episode, you would have known that we have a series of interviews coming from these award winners that were sponsored by the Whitley Fund for Nature. And there's six award winners that Angie and I have been busy the last few weeks interviewing from all over the world, from South America, Asia, Africa, and these award winners are just all grassroots conservationists and their stories capture, I think, the essence of our podcast with what we're trying to do, you know, educate the masses on what's going on out there and then fighting for these animals. And each one of these stories just hits you right in the heart. These are some amazing people. They are true conservation heroes, and we really hope you enjoy the interviews. So please go to our website, allcreaturespod.com. You can watch the little two to four minute video snippets narrated by Sir David Attenborough talking about these heroes, talking about the work they're doing, and then enjoy the interviews with them as we go more in depth with the projects they're doing, you know, from you know, fighting for African elephants to, you know, protecting the wetlands of Patagonia to protecting the forests in the Indo-Burma corridor in Nagaland in India. It's just each one of these conservationists are amazing people. And it just, it goes to show, you know, all the people we interview. I, I go back to Dr. Rebecca Cliff, the Sloth Conservation Foundation, she founded that herself after graduate school, like amazing. Then I go to Dr. Julian Fennessy, again, the Giraffe Conservation Foundation. We go to Mike Veal with Global Conservation Force. There are so many people out there fighting for wildlife in our wild spaces. So I know sometimes the news we give in the podcast isn't great. I know, you know, hearing these stories about certain species struggling, heading towards extinction isn't fun a lot of the time to, to, to hear about, but behind each of those animals, there are people like this fighting to preserve them and preserve their native habitats. So that gives us a lot of hope. These are the good stories that we want to be telling. 
we conducted all these interviews over Zoom, so the audio quality was was as good as we can make it. Because I mean, again, these are conservationists in the field in some pretty remote regions on the planet. So I hope you enjoy this interview. This one is we're we're kicking it off with Dr. Lucy Kemp in South Africa. And as always, it's an honor for both Angie and I to to speak to these conservation heroes. So enjoy the interview. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And today I'm very excited to introduce Dr. Lucy Kemp. She is the project manager for the Mambula Ground Hornbill Project. The timing is impeccable. We just covered hornbills. Lucy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's awesome to be here. Yeah, and um, it's it's late here in New Zealand, but uh, afternoon there in South Africa, correct? Afternoon, but still chilly. We we deep <laughs> diving deep into winter at the moment. I know. That's in the southern hemisphere. It's, it's chilly. <laughs> Everybody in the northern hemisphere is enjoying spring and summer. So I guess my first question, where in South Africa are you located right now? I am extremely lucky. I live on a, a small game reserve called Mabula Game Reserve, um, which is in the Limpopo province. So it's about two hours north of Johannesburg. Um, so I get to do my job because I have a Wi-Fi connection and I get to live in the bush, which is my happy place. So yeah, that's where we're based. But we work, we work across the entire country wherever our birds occur. Oh, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's amazing. Well, my first question I always like to ask is your background how you got involved in conservation, you know, maybe a little bit on your education. We, we have a lot of young listeners to the podcast that are very interested in careers in conservation. So it's always exciting to hear your story about how you got started. <laughs> sure. Um, my story is accidental. Um, my my parents did all the early research on ground hornbills um, in Kruger National Park. Uh, nothing was known about these big birds and, so yeah, my dad worked at the museum in Pretoria. And so every school holiday, especially Christmas holidays coincided with ground hornbill breeding season. And so we were taken on these field trips and acted as unpaid research assistants. Um, but I think spending that much time in such an incredibly big open wild space like our Kruger National Park, which is our biggest national park, um, definitely instilled something in me, A, the need to be in the bush and to have wild places and wild creatures around me, um, but also some feeling of responsibility about it, um, some feeling of needing to do something um, to make sure that I can keep this for other people to enjoy. I, you know, I think so. So I think it's a selfish need. Um, I, I just need to be surrounded by wild places and wild things. Um, but I, you know, I think if COVID's taught us anything is that's probably a very deeply inherent human thing. I think we all need that. Um, so, so I went through that route, um, but because dad was doing birds, I tried my best not to do birds. Um, so I studied marine biology. Um, and then I, yeah, so I worked on otters, I worked on artisanal fisheries, and then I moved to Namibia and I worked on black rhinos and high value plant species as an alternative to ecotourism, trying to find ways of how wildlife can pay for itself without it necessarily having to be shot or sold. Um, so that really instilled in me the, you know, the need to involve people in conservation, because I think most species, if we just leave them alone, they'll fix themselves. It's it's really the people component that we've got to try and support and, and fix. And so, so that sort of started the community bug. Um, and then, yeah, I just, I don't know, accidentally found myself back in 
birds and in particular ground hornbills. So it, it was accidental. Um, I didn't plan to be here, um, but it's been an incredible journey, just keeping learning about these birds and learning about the people who share the landscape with them. Uh, it, it's an amazing story. And those are some big shoes to fill, right? Your parents? Like, wow. Size 12, to be exact. <laughs> um, um, it is. Um, but I think also at that stage, you know, it was just academic interest. It was just a really interesting bird. And in just, you know, our one half generation, you know, from them to me, um, the bird is now endangered and sliding to critically endangered. So it's no longer a really cool animal to study because, because it's cool and interesting to study, you know, we need to figure stuff out for them. Otherwise, you know, they're not going to be around for other generations to, to have around, to be interested in. No, it is interesting. And I have to acknowledge that the Whitley Fund for Nature, who just recently had six awards given and, and Lucy was one of them, put us in contact and we'll talk a little bit about the project she's going to work on with them in a minute. But the, Southern ground hornbill. I, I, you just said they're in decline. What is their status? What is happening to them out there across Africa? So it's kind of twofold. Um, you know, they're big birds, they're slow breeding, you know, they've got all of the life history traits that puts them in trouble anyway. Um, and then you couple that with all of the human threats that are being thrown at them left, right and center. They're just can't keep up. Um, so some of the big ones in South Africa are poisoning. We still have farmers putting out poisoned bait for jackals and hyenas and so-called pest species. Um, and, you know, a whole group of ground hornbills, a family unit, will move through the bush looking for food, scavenging, and they will find one of these poison bait items and the whole group will feed off it. And so we're not just losing individual birds, but we're losing entire breeding units. Um, and, you know, so there's that. There's the threat of lead toxicosis from spent lead ammunition. And in the States and Europe, that's a very well-recognized issue and problem. Um, but in South Africa, we're really starting from a you know, zero baseline, trying to get awareness up and going. And you know, these are the threats that, that the birds are facing, electrocution on transformer boxes. Uh, they are highly territorial. So every time they see their reflection um, in a shiny surface, a window, a shiny car, your windscreen, uh, their, their immediate response is to fight whichever enemy is coming to their territory. It's going to steal their wife, steal their nest. Mm -hmm. And so they really have to try, you know, they want to fight that enemy. And that leads to human conflict wildlife. And, you know, even the most conservation-minded farmer is going to, you know, after replacing all of the windows in his house for the fifth time in a year, is going to say that's enough. I can't deal with this. It's expensive. Um, you know, and it's just these threats are just piling up on top of each other. Um, and then there's, you know, the natural things, lead, um, Newcastle's disease, avian influenza. So yeah, they've got a lot going on. Um, and so we've got to try and, and fix these things at, at every level. So when you say like a half generation with like 10 years, 20 years, it's they, we think they live until 70. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so so we, we're looking at about the last 20 to 30 years. There's been a be. steep decline, just a steep decline. Now, yeah, yeah. You know, we covered the great hornbill, which is in Asia, so it, it is different. Are these more omnivorous? Are they more going after meat and stuff where the, the great hornbill and the others are more fruitivores? What's the diet of these these birds? 
Well, I think the ground humbles should be called the great because they yes. are the greatest. <laughs> just, to, just to sneak that, that in. Um, but no, so we, we call them fornivorous. Um, so they eat the whole animal. So they don't just eat meat. Um, they basically eat whatever they can catch and swallow in one, one go. They will hunt together. So if it's something like a hare or a big tortoise, they'll work together. Um, but yeah, fornivorous, they don't drink any water. They get all of their moisture from the food that they eat. Um, but then they will uh, pick up peanuts or pecanuts, you know, so they, they, they're opportunistic fornivores, I guess, is probably the best way of describing them. Right. And, and don't these birds have like a, a big cultural significance to Africa? Because I was reading they're called thunderbirds, rainbirds. Can you kind of talk about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, they, they're a big, obvious bird in the landscape. They stand about a meter tall, that huge red face, the giant dagger stuck on the front of their face. Um, you know, they're obvious and and people have been living with them for millennia and have started to associate them with the coming of the first good rains of the season. We have summer rainfall here. Um, and, you know, so that's at the end of a long, dry winter. Um, and they won't breed unless it's going to be a good rainy season. Um, and so people have recognized that when ground hornbills are calling throughout the day, that is when they're going to go down and breed and they're only going to breed when there's good rains. So this is how this mythology about the rainbird, the thunderbird has come about. Um, and, and, you know, if you're a subsistence farmer, you really want to know if it's going to be a good year. And, and we've spoken to people in Mozambique who are saying, you know, with a, a shifting climate and without ground hornbills, we actually don't know when to tend our fields um, because, you know, the climate's all over the place and they're really missing them as the sort of predictive rains, the, the, the you know, the, the, the bird that tells them when it's time to prepare for the big rains. Um, and so that's, you know, there's a lot of good mythology based with that. But then ground hornbills are also a big, quite scary looking bird. They eat meat, they eat snakes, they eat highly venomous snakes. Um, which is great if you live in the bush. Um, my partner was bitten by Mozambican spitting cobra this last December. So I'm the latest onto the list of super stoked for things that eat venomous snakes. Yes. Um, but you know that that you know that that support of having something around that will eat those big snakes has also endeared them to people. Um, and you know, over time, a bunch of other mythologies have developed and. They are important, they're recognizable, and they're very, very much a part of the, the rural African landscape, sub-Saharan African landscape. Now, you did say something that was interesting earlier, too, was the breeding units, because these birds have kind of a different, I would say, breeding reproductive strategy than the other hornbills, the lesser great hornbill. You, can you kind of explain for our listeners what... I guess the difference is because it, I, I was reading about it and I found it fascinating that it, it's not just a male and female pair, right? They actually have helpers. Is that true? Yeah. So ground hornbills are the largest cooperative breeding um, bird species in the world. And that means only the alpha pair does the breeding. So there's, there's the king and the queen essentially and all of the other birds in the group are there simply to help them so and they're mostly males and they, their job is to provision for the female bring food for her bring food for her chick defend the territory um and so even when you see a group of 12 nine you know these big groups that we see in some of our wild areas that's still just one breeding female per group um and so you know if you're looking in sort of a national context we're down to 600 groups which is essentially just 600 breeding females and the females can't 
breed without their army or, or their network of boys to keep them going. Um, so there's that. And then the other difference with ground hornbills is they don't seal themselves. They don't seal the female into the nest hollow. So all of the other hornbill species, the female is sealed in with mud um, and, and she molds all of her feathers during the breeding cycle. And then she comes out with the chick when it's ready to fledge. Ground hornbills are, they also nest in nest hollows, um, but they don't go through that elaborate um, sort of sealing in process. So they are more primitive hornbill. Um, so, you know, if you if you look at the evolution of, of hornbills, ground hornbills, nest sealing came came later. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. So, you know, looking at them from a conservation perspective, standpoint if they lose some of those males or i mean all of those males i mean she's not going to reproduce right or you're not going to get a clutch successfully reared absolutely um but then there's an additional <laughs> level of trickery yeah. to these guys is that the youngsters need the whole group to learn all of their bush survival skills um so if you remove the experienced birds from the group even if it's not the breeding female um, there's no one to teach the youngsters how to kill that black mumble, that cobra, how to kill the puff adder, how to avoid predation from caracal, from leopard, from cheetah. Um, and so what we're finding is without that support network of experienced mentors, they're really very vulnerable to predation and any number of other things going wrong. Um, for the first five years of their life, they need... Okay, let me rephrase this. For the males, for the first five years of their life, they need this constant guidance and support, whereas the young females are kicked out of the group when they're less than a year old, and they have to go it alone. Um, and they just kind of subsist in amongst these groups um, and wait until they sexually mature, which can be anything from eight to ten years, when they themselves can take the breeding position in a group. Now, are you having success breeding them under human care or in captivity? Has that been challenging? Uh, no. So that's, that seems to be working really well. Um, it's just a case of they so long lived and produced so slowly that we're wondering if that's actually a worthwhile strategy going forward. You know, I think a lot of the captive care and rearing is much better for smaller, faster producing species. Um, but what we can do is they lay a second egg, which is uh, like an insurance egg. So they have obligate brood reduction, mm -hmm. which means the second hatch check is the one that dies, unless there's something wrong with the first one, in which case the parents will rear the second one. And so there's a source, the stock of ground hornbills that would die naturally in the nest. And we've been using those, artificially rearing them and using them as the stock for a reintroduction program. That's amazing. Just, all of this is hearkening back to the California Condor project. Totally. Yeah, we've, we've covered them a couple, years, a couple years ago, and I was at the LA Zoo and talking to people at the San Diego Zoo that were involved with that. The, the lead, for one, was was a big uh, reducer in, in condors. But then the, the the hand rearing. So are you doing the puppet stuff that they've learned from that? Like. <laughs> No, we're not. I mean, I, I definitely, you know, we 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 rely on San Diego a lot for support and advice. Um, you know, we definitely between condors and African wild dogs, I think those are probably the two most similar species to what we're trying to do here. Um, so no, we don't we don't do the puppets. We did in the past, um, but we don't need to anymore. Um, we've built a specialized rearing center called the Baobab Conservation Rearing Center, um, where the the birds really only interact with captive foster families 
bodies. Um, and so from when they're brought into the artificial nests in the structure, they only see, hear, and interact with ground hornbills, and the humans are simply a pair of tweezers and some food that comes and goes. Um, but all of their attention is on the outside foster group they fledge into those groups and from there we make up the new bush schools where they will then go out to learn their skills and again we have to form these things that we call bush schools um, to enable these really stupid youngsters um, to learn the skills that they need to survive so it's taken us a long time to figure out what can work we've certainly know what doesn't work um, but you know it's working uh, we had 70 5% of our reintroduced groups are laying eggs successfully this past season. So we've jumped those hurdles. We've had reintroduced groups breeding um, and, and natural dispersals then from those groups. So we know it works. It's really just a case for us of trying to get enough funding to scale this model so that we can actually do something sensible for the population numbers. Right. And then how often do they naturally breed? Because it's not every year, right? It, it's, it, there's, a, there's a gap. Yeah, I mean, they're a bit like us. I mean, we don't want to churn children out every year. If we live until we're 70, yes, we'll yes. die of exhaustion. <laughs> um, so, you know, so so they, they breed on average every three or four years. Um, we have some groups, if they lose their nest within the territory or they lose a breeding adult that isn't um, replaced, they quite happily go for 20 years without breeding, wow. you know, so they, they, they don't feel this compulsion to churn youngsters out. Um, in captivity, absolutely, they breed every year because there's a good steady supply of food. Um, but generally, you know, just as and when the season is good, there's no point putting in about six months of the years is involved in the breeding process getting the nest ready, courtship behavior, nest lining, a 37-day incubation, three months until the chick leaves the nest. So it's half the year gone. And, you know, if it's not going to be worth it, if the bush isn't teeming with food, they don't, they're not, they're not going to commit to that. That's, that's, that's incredible. I mean, that's not even, I'm trying to think of mammal species besides us humans, but that don't yeah. have such a huge gap in between rearing and here you're talking about a bird so when you lose a family group or, or a breeding pair or, or breeding female it really hurts them compared to a lot yeah. of yeah, I mean, totally. We we think of the groups in our landscape like candles flickering. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we're just starting to see the lights go out, essentially, as we lose them. And the more groups, contiguous groups you lose, the less chance there is of dispersals finding other groups um, to get their own chance to enter that breeding role of being one of the alphas. Um, so, yeah, I guess our job is keeping the lights on. Oh, yeah, it's just... Oof. All right, so, so that's laid out... <laughs> <laughs> your ground hornbill and, and the issues that it's facing it's just it's just fascinating birds birds are fascinating they're just every time we cover one it just their stories and this one particularly is just wow so the mabula ground hornbill project i guess what's the history of that when did this start and what's the mission of the project um, so the, the project got set up in 1999. The founder was Ann Turner. Um, and at that stage, my dad had been kind of fiddling with whether you can harvest these second hatch chicks. Is it feasible? Can you rear them? And then if you can, what are you going to do with them? Um, and Anne had just retired to Mabula. Um, and she had gone down to one of our captive facilities and seen a showbird there, um, fell in love with this long-lashed <laughs> beast yes. um, we call them aging showgirls yes. i'm one of these aging showgirls and um 
you know, she came back to Mabula and started asking around, why are they not here? You know, this is good, good bush, good habitat. Where are they? And through her research, she got in touch with my dad, who had three birds ready to go. Um, and so that was basically the project formed around being a single reintroduction site. Um, but then over the years has just grown. Um, you know, we basically have six focal areas that we work on now. We work across South Africa and increasingly we're working across our borders. Um, we've learned a lot of things the hard way. And I would hate for any of our neighboring range states to have to waste any time or resources um, going through that same learning process. So we're doing a lot of sharing, um, having hosting and facilitating conservation planning workshops. So Zimbabwe's on board and, and hopefully this year and Namibia and Botswana as well. And then collectively, we can try and do something to, to make things better. Right. Do you find, do you find it hard? Cause especially as, you know, being an American, even though I'm living in New Zealand competing with, because you, like you said earlier, funding, it, it's just, it, it's, it's so difficult in conservation. You know, you're really depending on external resources a lot of the times and like the Whitley fund for nature, you know, they gave you money to do a project, but are you finding it hard in Africa to compete with the elephants, the rhinos, you know, all the, the, the megafauna that get a lot of the press? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and if anything, ground hornbills are more endangered um, than a number of those big ones. And so we're trying to make them as sexy and as cool um, in the hope we can attract the same sort of love and attention and cash, I guess, right. um, you know, and, we, we've, I've got an amazing team and we're doing a lot of capacity building, you know, building the future conservationists of, of Southern Africa. And the more resources we can put into them, I think better outcomes down the line for a bunch of species. Um, but absolutely. I mean, it's ongoing. We're a small nonprofit organization. Um, but we make it every year. We didn't lose any of our team during COVID. I mean, obviously, like everyone else, we, we took a big financial hit. Um, but we're still here and we're still working. Um, and the team remains committed. So, you know, we will. And, and also, I think because we know the tools that we've developed work, um, I think that hope that we can actually turn it around for the species is what keeps us going. Is it, so can I ask, it, you know, since you're on the ground there, what is going on in, in Southern Africa with COVID as far as effects on tourism, you know, not only conservation, conservation dollars, you know, we're hearing stories of poaching, but poaching of, you know, animals to feed families, you know, it's mm -hmm. not the typical, oh, rhino horn or, or elephant ivory. It's, it's more like people are, are hungry. So what, what's kind of on the truth on the ground there? Things are tough. Uh, we're very far behind on the vaccine schedule. Um, today is our second day of our vaccination rollout, um, other than the health workers. So now we're working on our elderly. Um, Tourism has taken a major hit and tourism actually supports a lot of our conservation work because, you know, the, the, the lodges support the reserves um, and the reserves in turn support the animals that are on them. Um, so definitely that's taken a big hit. Uh, um, and a lot of government funding is obviously being pushed into vaccine procurement um, and, and just social packages. You know, people are starving under this COVID regime. So, you know, I think if people are poaching for food, uh, they, they must do what they must. Um, you know, I think these are extraordinary times um, and we just have to try and keep momentum through that. Um, but... 
yeah, I mean, I, I, it's tough, but but I think everyone's committed to continuing. Um, most of my colleagues, uh, yeah, we just we're carrying on, yeah, <laughs> um, and we'll carry on regardless. Um, you know, it, it's it's not easy, and you know, again, that whole discrepancy of vaccine rollouts across the world. Um, we would love to see more of the vaccines down here. I mean, it's probably going to be twenty twenty five before I get mine. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's it's okay. Um, as long as the vulnerable get vaccinated and then everyone can get back to doing what we need to do. Right, right. I mean, even here in New Zealand, it, it, it's very slow. Australia and New Zealand, it's been very slow. So so I understand that. And even New Zealand being a, dependent on tourism, a lot of people are mm. suffering, you know, not like in Africa, but still. So I, I, I really want to ask about this project that you did get some funding for, thank goodness for these birds and it's the community-based approach to conserve the southern ground hornbill can you talk about i guess the genesis of that project and, and what it is i'm excited about it because i feel like this is a where conservation is going and where it needs to go yeah absolutely um so for the longest time, research into ground hornbills in South Africa was um, looking into our national parks, um, where obviously none of the none of the human threats are. Um, and I think once we started changing our focus and our gaze and looking into the other parts of the country where the birds were, we found some striking differences and similarities. So, in areas where there's strong cultural protection, the birds in some places of higher density than in our biggest national parks. Um, in, in habitat that looks awful, you know, it's full of alien invasives, it's overgrazed by the cattle, but actually in ground hornbill terms, that's awesome habitat. Look, big, huge open plains to forage in and some safe places to nest and the people you share the land with don't want to hurt you. Um, and so th there was that. And then in areas where that traditional belief has become eroded or on commercial farmland, where there isn't that inherent protection, the birds are, are pretty much absent or highly fragmented across the landscape. So we realized that, you know, it's not something like vultures where if you protect the breeding colony, you can protect hundreds of a species. We literally have to go group by group by group because they're resident on their territories. And the only way to do that is engaging with the people that share the land with each and every one of those groups. Um, so that was kind of the genesis. How on earth are we going to try and figure that out? Um, and so we're going to do that in two ways. Um, one is through a custodianship program. So where the nests are, that whoever owns the land where a nest is, are the people that we primarily engage with. Um, we work with them to mitigate for the threats. We do training of all of their staff and, and we support them with whatever comes up. So if, if hornbills have broken the factory windows, cool, let's see if we can get funding to try and fix that or advise you to fix it, you know, to cover the windows before they break the windows. Um, and, and then also with the nest, if, say, an elephant knocks a tree down or there's strong winds or a big fire and you lose your nesting tree, how can we support you to replace that nest before the next breeding season so we don't miss a beat? Mm -hmm. um, and so through the provision of nests, that means we can absolutely support the productivity. And, and the key thing there is wooden nest boxes, artificial nest boxes, work great. Ground hornbills love them, they breed in them, they fledge successfully. 
but they rot after eight to 10 years. And that's just totally unsustainable for a tiny NGO to try and run around the country replacing all of those every decade. Um, so we started experimenting with artificial materials. Um, and the more we got into that, the more we were thinking about the microclimate within these nests, the more we were thinking about climate change. And we realized that actually the nests we're building today have to be able to support and protect the embryos in those eggs 40, 50, 60 years from now when our temperatures are not going to be what they are now. Mm -hmm. And already we're starting to see signs of embryo death when we have heat waves of 40, 45 degrees. Um, and so, you know, these are the things that we've tried to build into this project going forward. It's, yeah, some kind of future-proofing. Right. Oh, just it made me think of the African penguins and the, the artificial nests that they're building down there, you know, for mm -hmm. them and, and the heat and, and things like that. Oh, it's just, wow. So, Getting communities involved, I, you know, highlighting that, is that the future survival for the, the Southern Ground Hornbill? Like getting locals involved because looking at the globe and looking at conservation efforts, it's, it's no longer, you know, the rich nations going, throwing money at a problem and saying, oh, okay, fix it. It's getting on the ground, getting the locals buy-in getting the locals behind it that is where we're seeing success you know with conservation in africa and asia and in south america you know even in in north america so your project aims to to go and and engage communities right with education and then also citizen science scientists so yeah so so Citizen science, absolutely. Um, they're low density, naturally low density occurring birds, so really tricky to try and census. Um, so we need not just the birders on the ground, but everyone on the ground reporting when they see birds. So we have WhatsApp groups. Um, we've got about 50 of them in the country so far. And we've had in just a year, we've already had less, where are we now? May, five months into the year. Um, we've had a 49% reciting of all of our um, pentads. Um, so, so we need people to help us monitor, but also if we can't protect them where they are, we are gonna lose them. So if the people who share the land with them aren't going to protect them. Our national parks aren't big enough to, to maintain viable populations. So we have to engage with communities, again, through the custodianship program. Um, on communally managed areas, we work with the traditional authority councils, with the royal houses, um, and, and they have to become part of our team, and I guess us in turn part of theirs. Um, the other thing with the communities is there's so much learning for us to do from those communities. You know, there's so much indigenous knowledge around the species, and we would be so stupid if we didn't take that into account, fully understand it, and find ways and opportunity within that to strengthen the support that the communities can give to their own birds. So, so that's another big part of this project going forward is documenting all the songs, all the stories, you know, there's just so much beautiful history associated with these birds. And how can we take that and use that as a conservation tool? That's amazing. It's amazing work. It's amazing work. So what are some of the other research projects you're involved with right now? Sure. <laughs> Here's a long list. <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> well, I've just come off a three-hour call. Um, you know, the lead is, is a really big problem in South Africa. Um, so we're looking at some of the behavior change um, issues about how we can get people in South Africa who use lead um, on board to look at alternatives. Um, we, With that, then we're doing some uh, trials on chelation therapy. So if we do get a ground hornball in that has lead toxicosis, what's the best, safest way of rehabilitating that bird and getting it back out into the wild? Um, we do a lot of work on the diseases, so Newcastle's disease, avian influenza. Uh, we developed a vaccine for ground hornbills, so the birds that we reintroduce are vaccinated before they go out. Um, and we're going to start looking at trials that if there's a major outbreak in, say, Kruger, can we get out there and vaccinate at least a portion of the of the mission um, before that, that outbreak takes hold? Um, <laughs> ongoing education, <coughs> excuse me, we're looking at um, ways of actually, aside from the reintroductions, expanding the range. Um, and so I've got an MSc student working on that. And um, yeah, what else have we got on the go? A lot, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, my research coordinator shouts at me because I keep coming back with new ideas of things that we have to try and tackle. Right, 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 right. So uh, my podcasting partner, she this is kind of obscure. Can you make a ground hornbill call? Can you do that? No. I, yeah, I, mean, no. I told her, I'm like, she's like, ask that. I'm like, all right, I'll ask that. No. Um, <laughs> but what, I, no. what are the other questions she had was, what are some of your favorite behaviors of these birds? Playing. Um, they, the adults and the youngsters play, and in some respects, their behavior is so much more primate than it is avian. Um, the learning, the social learning, I mean, watching a brand new youngster follow the alpha male. If he looks left, the youngster looks left. If he looks right, the youngster looks right. I just think there's so much inherent playfulness and cheekiness in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can be a right nuisance if they want to be. Um, but they're just so smart. You know, they, there's something going on in a group at any, any stage. Are you without chuckling or yeah no they just they they're an endlessly interesting species which i mean it's because bird it's just their their behavior they're fascinating they're fascinating they deserve our respect our protection and and people like you out there in the world fighting for them so thank you for what you do it's we call you conservation heroes because each of your stories for each of these species you know it 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 really gives us hope for the future of the planet, even though we're seeing this great decline, what does the future look like for them going forward? If we can get the people who share the land with them on board, it looks beautiful Mm -hmm. um, is the short answer. The tools work. Um, People have an inherent love of them anyway. They know them. Um, They've grown up with them. And, you know, we speak to some some of the elders in a village. And when you put their their age into perspective, they realize that the alpha male of the group that they see every day was probably a chick when they were young boys. Mm -hmm. And and once you can make those links and just see how similar they are to us, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an easy conversation to have. And people have so much more empathy for them when they have that kind of link. Right, right, right. So with the the Whitley Fund for Nature, it, it, who else are you working with? Anybody else you want to recognize? 
uh, millions. Yeah, <laughs> um, ground, ground, ground Hornbills is, is absolutely a team effort. Um, you know, there's my team, um, obviously, um, and but then there's all of the, the greater Southern Ground Hornbill working group in South Africa. Um, everyone who's chipping away at, at different bits and pieces uh, of the puzzle, helping us understand them better, helping us get education out there, helping us with funding, um, and just, you know, trying to collectively pull that together. Um, and then, you know, just so many collaborators in South Africa, all of our national parks, our provincial parks, um, our private reserves, uh, all of our zoos, our academic institutes, you know, it's it really, you know, they say it takes a village to rear a child. Um, I think it's going to take the whole damn lot of us um, to try and, and do things for these birds and so although you know we often the face of it you know it's it's a it's a much bigger picture and there's a lot of people working away to try and make a future for the species yeah no it's 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 wonderful that there are people out there you know working hard for them so what's in i want to you you mentioned you're you're going out in the field so i guess if i can ask what you're going to be doing like what's your average day look like like what you're doing out there (laughs) My my average day is sitting in front of my computer trying to phase fundraise so that I can pay my team to go and do fun stuff. Um, but I am being let out of my box tomorrow. Um, I'm I'm looking at a couple of new reintroduction sites in Marikele National Park. Um, so we're going to look at um, a couple of areas that they think might be good potential habitat um, and just chat through what the logistics of that might look like and start putting together some sort of framework for how we're going to take that forward because that park could hold another two groups. Um, And so we've got these two big core areas in South Africa um, that we're trying to close these gaps. So there's, you know, from us here on Mabula all the way through to Marikele. And then the other big one is Northern Zululand because there's this huge gap in the gene flow now between Kruger National Park and all of the population south of that. So, you know, we're gonna try and use the reintroductions to strategically plug some of these gaps in the landscape. That is, yeah, I remember talking to uh, Julian Fennessy with the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, and I think that's what he said. <laughs> he did was fundraise, fundraise, fundraise. It's just, you know, a few of the, it's just, it's hard. You know, you got to pay for this, and, it, and it's hard. So how can our listeners help you? You know, what could they do? You know, obviously probably go to the website. We'll definitely link that. I don't know if you have any social media accounts we could follow but how else can they help the Southern ground hornbill? Um, cool. Yeah, absolutely. Please. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Um, busy learning clubhouse. <laughs> so I go forward. Um, and um, so if you live on the African continent and you share your space with ground hornbill sighting records, especially for areas outside of protected areas, those records for us are like gold because they are the founding basis for how we make our decisions for the species. Um, if you live outside of the range of the species and you would like to fund our work, that would be awesome. Or just help us share, spread the word. You know, if you have friends or family who thinks who might be interested in this crazy cool bird, um, please share. I think that would be the coolest thing yeah no well you know thank i know you're busy i know you're not, especially the after getting this big award i mean it's it's a it's a big deal it, it's a really big deal and you know your your video that you know sir david attenborough narrates i'm like oh my gosh you know, it's a great honor it's a great I've, honor i've had i've had so many friends recommend that i make that my ringtone <laughs> <laughs> you know just yeah you know just 
to hear David Attenborough talk about the project is beyond my wildest dreams. Oh, I, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. And it's just, I, I just have to say thank you. Thank you for what, what you're doing because yes, elephants and some of these more charismatic megafauna get the press. But when you have a bird like this that is in severe decline and your parents and now you and all the team behind you that you work with, you're making a difference. You just don't know it. You know, you're, you're making a difference. It's hard when you're, I've, I've been there doing the research, you know, you're, you're blinded because you're so busy, but from an outsider's perspective, I just have to say, thank you on behalf of our listeners. Thank you for what you do. That's awesome. Thanks very much. Well, I'm going to let you go so you can warm up in cold South Africa. So it's hard to imagine South <laughs> Africa cold. Well, I'm freezing here in New Zealand. Oh, no, I'm in South and Beanie. And, yeah. That's going to be me as Africa's I go. Africa's more fun in summer. <laughs> we all bundled up as I go to sleep. But, oh, no. Thank you, Chris. Um, yeah, every little bit that helps us get the word out is magic. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And we will definitely be pushing this and pushing, you know, to our listeners and everybody around the world. But Dr. Lucy Kemp, project manager, Mabula Ground Hornbill Project. Congratulations on the, the prestigious award. And we're going to keep following you and your group's work. But thank you so much for spending the time to talk to us today. That's awesome. Thanks. And to all of your listeners, thank you.